Fantastic. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's great to be uh, sharing with you this morning. Uh, let me just introduce myself for those of you who perhaps don't know me. Um, my name's Sam. I'm a, a student at the moment. I'm studying at Bible College, uh, Cliff College, just up the road. Um, in my final year of doing a degree uh, studying in theology. So uh, that's a little bit about me. Um, I also do the youth work here along with Katie Gaz and Lorna. And this afternoon, actually, we're going to... Um, to a trampoline park in Sheffield. I don't know if you've ever done that, but uh, I think it's quite a new thing. Just a whole warehouse full of trampolines. You bounce around. I think there's some basketball nets in there as well. I'm pretty excited about that. So maybe try a few uh, slam dunks. We'll see. See what happens. Um, but yeah, so we're carrying on uh, the Matthew series this morning. We're up to Matthew 16, and uh, we're going to get straight into it. Uh, we're going to start at verse 21. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, I encourage you to open that up. It's Matthew 16. We're going to start at verse 21. And uh, in this passage this morning, what we'll see is Jesus is going to be, well, Jesus begins to uh, reveal something new to the, the disciples, something that they haven't heard yet. And uh, we're going to unpack that a little bit. And um, what it is, is Jesus speaks for the first time about his death. It's the first time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus begins to speak about his death and what that will entail. And uh, what becomes apparent is uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. So let me begin reading from verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And so as I said, it's uh, new information for the disciples. It's uh, a new truth for them to deal with. And I think what we need to understand is actually how difficult it would have been for the disciples to hear this for the first time from Jesus. Because bear in mind, that actually up until now, what have they seen Jesus do? They've seen him welcome the outcast. They've seen him heal the sick, teach the profound, meet the needs of many, and serve others in a really radical and countercultural way. Jesus has become to the disciples more than just a teacher. He's their hero. He's their spiritual leader. He's everything to them. They've left everything behind to follow him. They've abandoned their families to a certain extent to be with him and to chase after the things that he's teaching them. Uh, teaching them. And so this moment arises where they're looking at him who's their hero. And bear in mind that Peter, last week if you were here, Dan taught us on the, on the proclamation of Peter has of Jesus being the son of God. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll have heard that. Um, Peter proclaims the Messiah, the, the son of the living God. That's what he says Jesus is. So they know Jesus to be a hero, to be their everything. And now he sits them down and turns to them and says... I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And you think, uh, I, I, I just wonder um, what that would have been like for the disciples to hear for, for the first time. I don't want us to miss that. I, I think it's really important that we realize that for the disciples, that would have been quite a shock. That, that wasn't part of their plan. I don't know if it happens to you very often, but at the moment, a lot of people come up to me and say, oh, what's next, Sam? Or, or what's your five-year plan, Sam? Where do you see yourself 
after your degree's finished? What, what are you going to do next? I'm in my final year, so those questions are coming more and more regularly. And uh, I wonder for the disciples whether prior to Jesus sitting them down and telling them this, you know, you go up to one of the disciples or Peter, come here, or Matthew, come here. What, what's next, Matthew? What's your five-year plan? Where, where do you see yourself this time next year, Matthew? Maybe Matthew would reply, perhaps he would say, well, maybe we'll head towards Jerusalem, maybe do a leaflet drop. We want to get Jesus' reputation up a little bit. We want, <laughs> we want to build the, uh, the rep of Jesus, and then perhaps uh, with that we'll have a bit of a reputation as well. And once we've gone to Jerusalem and we've taken the old city, once we've done that, maybe, maybe then we'll head north. That's where it all started in Nazareth. Maybe we'll head there and and see about, see about Jesus getting a, a following there as well. And, and actually in this moment, no, Jesus sits the disciples down and he says, no, what, what's the five-year plan, guys? What's, what's going to happen next? This is Jesus speaking. He says, we're going to go to Jerusalem, yes, but I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. I think it's safe to say that the disciples would have been a little bit surprised, if not stunned, by what Jesus said. And it's funny because we have hindsight on our side in the 21st century. We look back and, uh, you know, we see from our point of view that when Jesus says he'll go and suffer and die, and he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and effectively be a sacrifice, we see from our point of view that Jesus is fulfilling a lot of things in the Old Testament. We see in the Old Testament all sorts of laws that involved sacrifice. I don't know if you knew that, but in the Old Testament you'd have to sacrifice animals and there's a variety of different ways you'd do that um, in order to be made right before God. That's what happens in the Old Testament. The disciples would have known this. And we have this brilliant hindsight that we see and we go, yeah, so Jesus' death was actually the ultimate sacrifice but for the disciples, in that moment, they didn't understand that the sacrifices of the law were all meant to point them to the sacrifice of Jesus, which he now tells them is about to come. And so what does Peter do in response from verse 22? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And uh, I just want to point something out here. I, I was reading this a few times. And uh, it's the nature of Peter's rebuke. Because the Bible tells us that Peter took Jesus to one side and to tell him that it would never happen to him. And, and, and yet, Jesus responds in such a harsh way to, to Peter. You know, verse 23, we carry on. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. There's no dialogue from Jesus, no conversation, no nothing. Just a really harsh rebuke. And it's a little bit odd, because from Peter's point of view, who, bear in mind, he's probably feeling pretty good about himself, because he's just nailed the answer on the head with the in the previous passage where he's just proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God. So he's probably feeling pretty good. And so he's taken Jesus to one side and said, Jesus, don't, this isn't going to happen. You're talking rubbish. This isn't right. 
And so Jesus rebukes him really, really quite harshly. And, and what's that about? Why does Jesus do that? Why is there such a firm response from Jesus? What actually seems, from what actually seems to be a nice gesture from Peter. And I think we learn two things from this. I just want to say two things from that encounter between Jesus and Peter. The first, I think we see in, in Jesus. Jesus is so set on the will of the Father that any glimpse of discouragement, any glimpse of persuasion away from the Father's plan, he just halts, just completely destroys. Any sign of a little bit of temptation, which quite frankly, that, that's quite tempting. You know, it's not a public thing that Peter's done. He's taken Jesus to one side and said, this, not, this isn't right. And, so, and in that moment, Jesus could easily have gone, oh, actually, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you're right, Peter. But no, Jesus just destroys him. It's harsh. But what is it? It's temptation just trickling through ever so slightly. And so Jesus absolutely destroys it. He does not give it a chance to fester at all. And so what I think we learn from this is actually when temptation comes, which it does for all of us of any sort, I think what we see in Jesus here is to just rebuke it before it does have a chance to fester and to develop and to become anything more than just a passing thought. Because that's what this becomes, just a passing thought. And the second thing I think we learn from this incident is in Peter. We see in Peter in this moment that there can be huge spiritual ignorance even in a follower of Jesus. You know, Peter has literally just proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God. He's literally just got the answer completely 100% right and he's received the blessing that comes with that. It's just happened. His heart is right before God. Before God, he is fine and yet he misses the will of the Father. And so in Peter, I think we learn that it's possible to be right before God and yet still miss the things of God. And why do I say that? I think I just say that for a simple heads up this morning. Like, you know, although our hearts can be right before God, you know, there still remains this absolute need and, and a must for us to tune into his will. And how do we do that? Well, I think we do that through prayer, worship, devotion, just everything to the reading the Bible, you know, just the things that we do at church, getting plugged into home groups, coming on Sunday mornings, you know, attend an encounter, stuff like that. Tuning into God's will. Because in Peter we see a man who's right before God and yet misses the big picture with Jesus. The passage moves on and we come to what is some profound teaching of Jesus. From verse 24 we read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus challenges 
their preconceptions uh, of what it means to follow him. Jesus has explained that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, and he must endure the suffering and then die. Only now, Jesus changes the emphasis. Do you notice that? Jesus changes the emphasis of the suffering. He takes it away from himself and puts it onto the disciples. Having explained the burden of the cross, Jesus now calls, himself, calls the disciples to that very same burden. So what does it mean to take up your cross? And I just want to clarify this morning, actually, because as I was preparing for this morning, it dawned on me that actually people have interpreted the cross in a few different ways. And uh, often, sometimes, I don't know if you've come across this or maybe you do this yourself, um, the, the cross, Jesus, take up your cross, can be interpreted as some kind of uh, burden you must carry in your life, that you, you've got to bear a burden of maybe a strained relationship, a thankless job, a physical illness. And perhaps, you know, sometimes with self-pity we say things like, that's my cross I have to carry. Like, my leg has been hurting for five years, that's my cross I have to carry. And I'm, I just don't think that's such an interpretation that Jesus means here when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Yes, I think life's difficult and people suffer. And we've touched on that as a bit of a, as a church. And we can touch on it more, I'm sure, in one-to-one conversations. I'm sure Carl would be up for that. I'd be up for that. But in this moment, what does take up your cross mean to somebody in the first century? What does it mean to the disciples as Jesus tells them to take up their cross? What does the cross mean? I think it mean, meant one thing. It meant, the, it meant death by the most painful and humiliating means human beings could develop. 2,000 years later, in the 21st century, we see the cross as atonement and forgiveness and grace and love. And it is all of those things, and it's fantastic. But in Jesus' day, what did the cross represent? It represented death. Bearing your cross, that meant carrying your own execution device while facing ridicule along the way. We see the harsh reality of what it means to follow Jesus. The fact you'll face opposition, and actually that opposition will be everything from peaceful disagreement to hate-fueled persecution and death. And the reality is that we see that spectrum being played out in the Bible. And we see that spectrum being played out around the world today. It's pretty heavy to think about, but it's a reality that we face as Christians. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To deny your self-interest, to put God first, but to be prepared to face tremendous opposition. And we see that around the world. Why? Why do that? Why? What makes it so? What makes it worth it? Jesus answers the question. I, I, I love it when Jesus just answers the question for us. Twenty-six. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and He will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus puts the emphasis on your soul. 
as the reason for bearing a cross. I don't know what you think of when uh, you hear the word soul. I feel like everyone has a different opinion on what that might be. Uh, in the Bible, often the soul is referred to as your heart. Maybe that's an easier way of thinking about it. And why does Jesus put such an emphasis on our soul? Why does he use our souls as justification for taking up your cross, of facing hate-fueled persecu- persecution? I think Jesus says it's going to be tough out there. But at the end of the day, it's worth it. Because actually, when all's said and done, when your life's over, which is a reality for everyone, it's your soul that remains. That's all that's left. So Jesus says it's going to be tough. You're going to face opposition. But actually, it's your soul that I'm interested in. When all's said and done, your soul will be with him for eternity. That's why it's worth it. That's why I take up your cross. Why take up your cross? Why be made fun of at work? Why let your mates take a dig at you? Why be increasingly marginalized by society? Or for other people around the world, why face torture or why face the death penalty? And Jesus says, because at the end of the day, it's your soul that will be left in eternity with Jesus. So I just want to conclude this morning uh, with two, two things. And uh, the first is real quick. Um, I love what one commentator says about this passage we've looked at this morning. He's talking about the disciples. He said, they fought so much of the Messiah's crown that they lost sight of his cross. The disciples fought so much of the Messiah's crown that they lost sight of his cross. And finally, before we take communion and Carl's going to come and lead us in that. I love the timing of these verses. I really do. And let me explain what I mean by that. It's as soon as uh, as Peter proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, as soon as Peter claims Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus turns to to his disciples and, and makes it very clear what kind of Messiah Peter is proclaiming. He proclaims that he's a Messiah that stoops to conquer. A Messiah whose suffering is beyond human imagination. It's a Messiah that will outstrip any social or political dimensions. In verse 21 it says, when on the third day he'll be raised to life. 